Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm one of today's co-hosts, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a two-sided tech marketplace where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. I'm excited to welcome Grace Cologne, a longtime biotech executive and president and CEO of Encarta Therapeutics to the podcast. Grace, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. So as a starting point, we'd love to just learn a bit more about how you got to where you are right now and just your overall career path. I'm an engineer by background. I did my undergrad and PhD in chemical engineering. And throughout those years, it was undergrad at Penn and PhD at MIT. I did a lot of research in biotech. So I got fascinated by genetic engineering. This was back in the mid 80s. I know I'm dating myself, but uh, really had a fascination for engineering and biotech and the combination and, and what the possibilities were by combining those two. So after grad school, I actually spent a few years at McKinsey, and that was what I would call my business training. It covered a lot of industries, a lot of different healthcare and biotech aspects to it, but also everything from pulp and paper and tech and services and learned quite a bit. And from there, I was hired by Sue Siegel to work at Affymetrix at a particularly exciting time in genomics when the human genome was being sequenced. And uh, there were quite a few discoveries being enabled by Affymetrix technology, particularly in oncology. And from there, I was recruited to Gilead Sciences, where I had the good fortune to be there at a time when there were quite a few exciting developments, and they were starting to look at new therapeutic areas. And I held a variety of commercial, corporate, and R&D roles, including building the Alliance Management Group, covering the relationship with Roche on Tamiflu. So I learned quite a bit about pandemics at the time, very topical uh, matter right now these days. And from there, I went to run a new division at Intrexon on synthetic biology applications for industrial biotech, biofuels, biorenewables, and such. So from there, I spent quite a few years. The last sort of eight to 10 years, I've been in entrepreneurial pursuits and as a venture capital partner with New Science Ventures in New York. So I've co-founded uh, some companies and repivoted some companies, been on several early stage boards, and also since the early days have been involved with Encarta and have helped it grow from a seed stage company to now we're raising a Series C to take our first lead product into Pivotal Trials. And um, what's Encarta working on? What are you working on now? So we are addressing a significant unmet need in cardiology, which is atrial fibrillation. What we're doing is we're changing the paradigm in how atrial fibrillation is treated. So atrial fibrillation today, when particularly in the early stages, which is uh, the early stages called paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, it's about a third of the population. Atrial fibrillation impacts about 6 million people in the U.S. alone, over well over 30 million worldwide. And about a third of these patients are what we would call the early stage paroxysmal, which means they're having sporadic episodes that self-resolve within seven days. Now, what happens is this is a common arrhythmia. It is progressive. And every minute that a patient is in this state of arrhythmia, you're actually progressing the disease and damaging the heart. So if you're in it for a few minutes, a few hours, a few days, that is contributing to an annual rate of progression of the disease to the next stage of eight to 10%. And the next stage is persistent in which it doesn't self-resolve by itself and you actually need to intervene. And that's another third of the population. 
eventually that population progresses to a permanent stage in which no more interventions are given and the, the patients are just managed with anticoagulation and rate control. So this is a significant cause of stroke. It's a significant cost to the healthcare system to the tune of over 50 billion a year in the US alone. And strangely enough, there's not been an innovation that allows patients to self-resolve symptoms within minutes, an approved innovation anywhere in the world. That is what we're working on. We're developing an inhaled version of an existing antiarrhythmic that's been on the market for decades called flecainide. And by developing an inhaled formulation, we're allowing patients to, hopefully, if this is approved, self-treat and resolve it in minutes. We have taken an off-the-shelf device so that we reduce device development risk side of the equation. As you know, as we were talking about earlier, drug development, drug-device combination is doubly risky if, you, if you're trying to develop both a device and a drug from scratch. So we're using an approved drug, an off-the-shelf device, and therefore really enabling a new route of administration. Because this is an episodic event that can be resolved with a quick hit of an antiarrhythmic drug, the best thing to do would be to get it to the heart as quickly as possible. And we do this by using a nebulized formulation that is absorbed quickly throughout the lung to the pulmonary vein into left atrium where AFib originates. And what we've shown is that when we treat patients and it works in our clinical trials, there are symptoms and the episode is resolved in a mean time of three minutes after treatment. And the treatment just takes a few minutes, for about eight minutes. So therefore, we hope that when patients, if this is approved, when patients are able to do this, over time, their overall disease risk will be significantly reduced. So therefore, the fewer minutes, you know, one patient may be having three to four episodes a year by current treatment, they may be in it in a total of hours or even days in a year. With our treatment, you can imagine that same patient might only be in the arrhythmia for an hour maybe, or maybe two hours. That difference over time should hopefully add up to better outcomes for the patient and a much lower impact to the healthcare system. Right now, three quarters of a million people are visiting the ER every year to mm. be treated for this, and 60% of those are hospitalized. So that results in huge inconvenience, huge cost to the system. And in fact, many patients in early stages don't even bother going to the ER mm. because they show up, they're given rate control, they're told to wait it out. Sometimes they're sent home, mm -hmm. they have to come back, be anticoagulated if it's been 48 hours, maybe they're electrically cardioverted, huge inconvenience, huge cost to the system, and the patients themselves tell us all the time that they, they really are in a state of fear, in a state of frustration, and they would love nothing more than to be able to control this and treat it immediately themselves. In the context of different potential indications that you could study or, or pursue, CV, despite its breadth and the size of the population that's uh, affected by those related issues, it's not quite as common in terms of new company formation, new modalities. You know, we're seeing a lot of work, and rightfully so, obviously go into IO, CRISPR, cell therapies, et cetera. Can you help us understand like the, the contrarian viewpoint and uh, you know, how you sort of think about the right indication, the approach there, given where the broader market might be sort of focusing its energy? For sure, and that is something that we recognized from the very beginning, and it was a challenge to fundraise because people would obviously question the exit when large companies were moving away and seemingly downsizing their cardiovascular focus, we, we were quite contrarian by saying, no, this is an unmet need, it's an opportunity. It's a huge challenge because of all of this, but it's an opportunity. Some of the classic factors impacting what people think of as traditional cardiovascular or cardiometabolic indications do not apply in our case. So that's one thing we have in our favor. So for example, 
a lot of times for many of these indications, what's required are mortality, large outcome trials, and so forth. Another big issue, and certainly with arrhythmias, is the safety history of many of these drugs. It's been hard to find the right therapeutic window that balances the risk benefit for the patient. And so with those two challenges, it's been really hard to find something new. So by tackling something in a completely new way, it's a challenge because you have to change the way of thinking about how this condition is treated, but it's also a huge opportunity because as a result of that lack of innovation, there's now this significant unmet need that we're well positioned to tackle. So I do think that, as you mentioned, recently I was at Bio CEO in New York and uh, speaking on the cardiovascular panel, and before the presentation, one of the bio staff gave a presentation talking about how all the, all the spending that's going into oncology, immunology, rare disease, and the total cost of the healthcare system is dwarfed by cardio and metabolic and other diseases. And so there's this disparity in terms of investment. Those other areas are quite important. There's a lot of exciting innovation. But in all of that, some of these other indications are getting lost in the shuffle. And we see that not only as a great financial opportunity, but even more importantly, these patients are being neglected, and we feel very passionately about the opportunity to impact their lives. And so given that this was an area where perhaps there hadn't been a lot of innovation, you probably had to talk to a lot of physicians to get them on board. So would love to unpack any lessons learned in terms of how you approached physicians to get them on board to be supportive in the early days? That's a great question. And funny enough, one of my roles at Gilead was to build a commercial strategic planning group from scratch. And that is something that taught me very early on and has really helped me with all my work with startups in the last uh, 10 years to focus very, very, very early on on the unmet need, the paradigm, stakeholder input. And so even in the early days with seed financing, I was having coffee meetings with physicians. I was talking to patients. I was talking to all kinds of people, all kinds of stakeholders to really understand the perspective and be able to better put forth the story and the unmet need and the commercial strategy value proposition for what we were doing. And so even with just coffee meetings and a couple thousand dollars here and there with patient surveys and so forth, we were able to put together quite an, an exciting story that enabled us to get our seed investment first and then series A investment and so forth. So I do feel that in this particular condition, there are a number of stakeholder physicians. So obviously general cardiologists, but also electrophysiologists and of course ER physicians. So throughout, we've had conversations with all of those physicians, even primary care, generalists, mm -hmm. hospitalists, to understand. And, and without question, every single one of them has said that AFib is a significant unmet need. Mm -hmm. Some of them got the value proposition sooner than others because they've been conditioned to say, oh, just give them rate control, it's fine. Mm. But when you talk to patients, the first thing you hear is it's not fine. Mm. I might be given rate control that gets my heart rate down, but I'm still in arrhythmia. I still feel dizzy. I'm still terrified because I'm still at risk of stroke. And so not enough of the patient voice was being heard. And I think that's important as well. But ER physicians mm. complain about the workflow, about they're frustrated that they can't give something to these patients, it's not easy to set up for an electrical cardioversion. You need anesthesia, you need cardiologists, you need a number of people and set it up. So from an ER physician standpoint, being able to have a solution that they can give someone and get them out of there and free up some beds mm -hmm. and also feel like, that's great, we solve this problem. They love the idea. Mm. General cardiologists get it, they're beginning to understand more and more. And of course you do the deciling, right? Some of them are more open to new paradigms than others, that's just the nature of pharma. And electrophysiologists 
really, really are excited about it. So they don't view it as, oh, this is going to reduce our ablation business. They view it as a great complement to treating early stage disease and also to treat patients that, uh, you know, 50% of ablations are successful, 50% fail mm -hmm. the first time. Mm -hmm. So there's still a population of patients that need treatment. So this expands the toolkit for mm -hmm. electrophysiologists and they're actually quite supportive and very excited about the potential to treat quickly. A follow-on question then is, for let's say biotech entrepreneurs that are listening, that are thinking about refining their pitch, and particularly when you're talking to providers where the potential of innovation has the ability to cannibalize their business, how would you suggest that people package up a new offering to get people to change their mindset from cannibalization rather than market expansion? That's a great point, and I think along the lines of what I was just talking about, it's very important from the very beginning to spend some time talking to all stakeholders. Mm -hmm. And that story can evolve. Your positioning and story, you can hone it and perfect it over time. You might have an outline at the beginning, but then you need to get that constant feedback. And it's not that hard. Mm -hmm. You can talk to people. You can pick up the phone. You can go on LinkedIn. I mean, if you don't have a lot of money, it's amazing the resources and tools that are out there and experts that are willing to talk to you. Once you get a little funding, you can do paid interviews and build on from there. There are survey tools. There's all sorts of ways to get that input, but the important thing is to show that you're going about it the right way, mm. that you're looking at the entire picture, not only as it is today, but as it would be in the future and getting all of that input. The payer aspect is very important very early on. People are gonna ask about coverage mm -hmm. and about the payer incentive to do this, so it's very important to get that as well. But I cannot stress enough that having been an investor as well, those questions need to be answered early. It doesn't have to be a huge quantitative study. We just completed one with hundreds of physicians. You know, you add to that, you refine it as you mature as a company. It can be a handful, but it's actually very powerful to even have those handful of discussions early on. You know, in, in that context, one of the things that I think is really exciting about the approach, and I think you used this phrase earlier, is that it puts control to some extent back in the hands of patients, which I think is a really unique place to be. Um, one thing that we're seeing in terms of the patient's view is not only wanting to have more control, but also more visibility, especially from a data perspective. Mm -hmm. I know one of the things we talked about earlier was digital health and its role in potentially ameliorating some of these diseases. I'm curious how you see digital health, if at all, playing in with AF and, and some of the other indications you guys are pursuing. So digital health is quite exciting. It's the mot de jour now. Everybody's investing in it and everybody finds it, you know, the valuations are huge. To me, it's quite simple. It needs to have a clinical utility and be tied to a business model. So for example, in AFib, there's a tremendous amount of attention and investment in mobile wearable and implantable ECG tools. The Apple Watch just announced a large study with J&J. There's been uh, LiveCore is another company that's, that's done some, some great work in this area. And the problem with that is there's no clinical solution immediately. So there are a tremendous amount of patients who, number of patients who now have these tools and they're confirming they're in AF, they're able to record their episodes, and that's fantastic. But the problem is physicians are getting inundated, they're, they're getting all these ECGs, that there's not much they can do with them right now because there's no quick option to treat. We view that when our treatment is approved, mm. You now have a closed loop where if you, you have an episode, sometimes an asymptomatic episode, you can confirm you have it, you can record it, you can treat, and then confirm after that you've actually been treated. And that's a powerful loop that has a clinical utility. 
Likewise, in other diseases, we've now seen that Livongo and Omada Health and other companies in the diabetes and the broader cardiometabolic state actually are offering a complete solution. So it's not just about a sensor or a tool or a piece of software. It's really about how is that new innovation enabling better chronic care management for those mm -hmm. patients. I'm chair of another company called Proterix Bio, which is developing biological tools, complex biological tools, to better manage COPD, which is another huge cost of the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. I mentioned AF was 50 billion, COPD is at least 30 billion. And again, it's not one of the other indications we talked about that's getting a lot of attention. However, right now there are companies working on pieces of that chronic care management for COPD. And Proterix Bio is partnering with companies that have some of those other solutions to make a more complete solution mm -hmm. and therefore go to value-based healthcare systems and other partners to be able to close that loop and provide better care reduce exacerbation risk, for example, reduce hospitalization. When we talk about the cost of healthcare now, a lot of attention has been paid to pharma, which is drugs are really only 10 to 15% of the total cost of healthcare. There are a lot of inefficiencies in the system and a lot of cases where if you took a simple look of the end-to-end -end care at the patient, there are tremendous opportunities for innovation that I would call low-tech and mm -hmm. common sense. And there's actually business models you can create around those. So I view that as an area that's very ripe for innovation. And it's an area where more and more digital health investors are beginning to realize and lose patience with some of the exciting tools they invested in early on, mm -hmm. because unfortunately some of those companies have been unable to close that loop and actually really have a sustainable business model. What's an example of what you just described where it's you know somewhat obvious in terms of how they're going about doing it, but they're really nailing it and they've come up with a really interesting business model that perhaps isn't as high tech as some of the other examples you provided. Yeah, I mean, a great example is Livongo, right? Yeah. It's a combination of tools to manage diabetes and it has everything from you know, inputs from the patient to various technical pieces of in measuring patients' blood work. All of these things come together with actual care tools and a closed loop with providers and payers and physicians and patients to actually provide that continuum of care and better manage the disease, right? And be able to impact the day-to-day the -day care of those patients. So that's what you really need. And the companies themselves might not have to provide the whole thing. They might have a partnering ecosystem that can then close that loop and eventually maybe grow and acquire that. So as long as you, you have a model where if you're small and you're not going to be able to offer that end-to-end -end right away, be smart about where you see gaps and where you might be bring a unique technology or solution and then find the right partners for that. It's not easy because a lot of people are trying to do this, but that's where I would encourage entrepreneurs and others to focus on. You know, I think that's, it brings up an interesting topic, which you've sat on the side of obviously biotech entrepreneur, board member, but then also as venture partner. A lot of the folks who sort of listen to Biotech 2050 are early on in their careers or aspire to be in your shoes one day. Any advice you can give them on the fundraising process, on the company building process, as they think about their own ventures? Absolutely. I think it can be very exciting and I, I applaud everybody who takes the risk to go start a company or join an early stage company. My key advice to entrepreneurs is don't give up. It might sound trite, but let me expand on that. And what I mean by that is there, there's never, there have never been more resources than there are now for early stage entrepreneurs, whether it be boot camps, whether it be accelerators, incubators, seed financing. I think there are a number of pieces they need to consider 
One is what is the funding they truly need to advance to the next milestone? So if they have an idea, there are ways to form a company around that by partnering. There are some fantastic law firms that help you partner for early IP and early company formation. Um, two is that early stakeholder input doesn't cost a lot, but really enables you to present a powerful story that may engage investors. There are angel networks, there are grants, those have pros and cons. There are family offices. There, there's so many resources now to get that little bit of funding that you may need to then invest in that proof of concept study. Partner with someone for an animal model. Partner with someone to get that you know, feedback you need on the marketing side, for example, chronic care management model. It does take quite a bit of stamina, and anybody who does this should be prepared to not make any money for a while. They might have to do this for free, to take founder shares. If they're in a position to do that, by all means, go ahead and do it. That's where the true innovation comes from. But don't give up. I mean, I, I've spoken to a lot of entrepreneurs. I've helped a lot of entrepreneurs early stage, and um, there are more resources than ever. And, and if nothing else, getting the experience, trying and failing, there's the pride of failure, certainly in Silicon Valley, um, that if at least you've tried and, and you, you've made those early connections, those early um, insights that enable you to do better next time, it's going to take a few times. It, you might not. You might get, you know, it might work the first time, but, but don't give up. One takeaway for me as you were chatting was that hustle is really important and persistence, but methodical hustle yes. where you're, you're going in a particular direction uh, with forethought. Uh, you know, the example that you provided about how do you convince healthcare providers when you're coming up with something new is a great example of methodical hustle where even if you have no cash in the bank, you're making sure that you're spending energy in the right areas. Yeah, networking is critical. Yeah. I just gave a webinar on strategic networking and whenever you network, make sure that you're doing it in a thoughtful way, that you're using people's time wisely, that you're bringing something in return. But I cannot stress the value of networking and long-term relationships to help you maybe with this company or maybe five companies down the road. You get fantastic free advice if you're able to grab five minutes with someone and pick their brain on something. So on that note, Grace, thanks so much for, for taking some time and providing us some, some free advice as well. Really Thank you. It. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Biotech2050Pod. Again, that's Biotech2050Pod. Until next time.